You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. That being said, um, open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews, which if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, it's towards the back, okay? It's pretty close to the back of the book. Um, It's right after a book called Philemon and right before uh, a book called James, okay? And um, we're going to be looking at four verses today. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. That's where we are today. And if you don't have a Bible, if you're new here, first of all, thank you so much for coming. We're uh, so glad you're here. Um, We want to connect with you and meet you and hang out. I mean, if you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back there, so please go help yourself um, and keep that. That is our gift to you. So, this section of scripture that we'll be looking at today in some ways, kind of like what I was saying, it serves as a conclusion of a section that begins all the way back in chapter 5, verse 11. We can actually break this larger section, Hebrews 5, 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 12, into three parts. In the first section, 5.11 to chapter 6, verse 3, the writer gives a stern rebuke to those who are Christians, but they're immature in their faith. These immature Christians are dull of hearing, and they still need to be taught basic principles of the faith and are feeding on milk instead of solid food. They're baby Christians, and they shouldn't be. Um, but they are Christians nonetheless. In the second section, chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, which Jer preached on last week, we're told about a group of people who seem to have been a part of the church, okay? They've had some kind of religious experiences and have even experienced blessing from God. That's what it seems like. But this group of people have fallen away. These people do not follow God. This part uh, of the bigger section, um, as I mentioned before, sort of serves as a conclusion to this. The author of this letter, the author of Hebrews, concludes the section by greatly encouraging believers in this church in verses 9 to 12. The author is convinced, okay, hold on to that word. The author is convinced that people described in this last section will persevere in their salvation to the end. So let's take a look at our passage together, beginning at verse 9. Yeah, it's up here for you. Uh, The author says, Though we speak in this way, though I have just rebuked and admonished you, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." So let's pray together before we dive in. Father, I just thank you so much for your word and your word to us this morning. And as we go through this text, Father, I pray, 
Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate this, that you would bring life to this text like you do, because this word, your word is living, it's active. And Holy Spirit, that's, that's what you do. You bring your word alive to us. And I pray that as we go through this, it would change us, it would, it would move us towards you, Lord, and that ultimately, Jesus, we would see you for who you truly are. So grow in us as we move through this. Grow in us a a desire for you. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Like many people in the room today, actually, um, put your hand up if you are a Keats person, if you've been to Keats. I know, I know, yeah. Amazing. Look at all of these people. That's so great. I wasn't expecting that many. I knew knew some. Uh, So like many people in this room, uh, I grew up going to a Christian camp called Keats. It's an incredible place. Um, it, it will always mean so much to me. I remember many different things like the freezing cold uh, Pacific Ocean swim tests. They take your breath away when you jump in. Terrible, terrible, hated it. Um, I remember all the candy and pop from the store called the Mariner's Inn. I remember so many people who came to mean so much to me. And I remember the most epic worship services in the evenings. Probably uh, no wonder why I love leading worship today still. These are all amazing things. Incredible experiences and so many deep emotions. There's absolutely nothing wrong with incredible experiences and deep emotions, our feelings. However, as I look back, I can see that much of my Christian life was actually based on past experiences and feelings of closeness to God. So here is the danger in that. I'm going to say this very carefully. My experiences and my feelings are not actually indicators of whether or not I'm saved. I'll say that again. My experiences and my feelings are not actually indicators of my being saved. They're not inherently bad things, okay? But they are not evidence. Alone, they are not evidence that I am a saved person. In this passage we're looking at today, the author explains that he is sure He uses that word. He is sure of his audience's salvation, and his certainty should be an incredible encouragement to us today. We cannot forget, as I already mentioned, that this passage comes right after the author has just rebuked them for an immature faith. He's called them to move on to solid food. This is a fight with our flesh, okay? I'm going to come back to this, but this is a fight with our flesh. There's a part of us that wants nothing more than to sit back and coast. And man, am I guilty of this. But there's so much danger in that. So here is, if you're going to remember only one thing from today, here is the big idea, okay? A true Christian who is actually saved will by grace through faith in Jesus persevere in their salvation to the end. That's the big idea. A true Christian who is actually saved will by grace through faith in Jesus persevere in their salvation to the end. 
So as I said, this passage serves as a great encouragement to the believer. And there are three encouragements that the author shares. And there should be, these will be on the, on the screen here if you're following on, along with an outline, if you're a note-taking person, then these are the three main uh, points for today. There are three main encouragements. The author encourages the assurance of salvation. Secondly, the author encourages perseverance. And thirdly, the author encourages faith in Jesus. So assurance, perseverance, and faith in Jesus. That's what we see in our text today. So let's first take a look together at how the author encourages the assurance of salvation. Let me explain what that is. Assurance of salvation is a God-given confidence. That's amazing. It is a God-given confidence for every true believer in Christ of their present approval right now, present approval, and future acceptance by their Father. Remember at the beginning that I mentioned that this greater passage of Hebrews 5.11 all the way to chapter 6, verse 12, describes two totally different groups of people. Chapter 6, verse 4 to 8, really serves as a warning to those who think they're saved, but they're not. This group has been enlightened, if you look back in your text. They've been, uh, they have tasted, and they have partaken but they have not experienced salvation. In stark contrast to this group, we have those described in verses 9 to 12 in our passage today. And verse 9 gives us several indications that this group is very different from the previous group. Look with me at verse 9. The author says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What a sweet transition from the previous section. This verse feels like a moment to take a deep breath, like I said. It's like a deep inhale, a deep exhale. Here are four ways we know that this group in verses 9 to 12 is different from uh, the group described in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6, okay? So first... The author uses what's called a contrastive conjunction. That's just a fancy way to say that he uses a word like but. Here he uses the phrase, yet as for you. This is but, okay? And I really want you to focus in on that word, but, or yet as for you. Whenever you read scripture, I want you to see that word, and it's everywhere, but. Because it's always used to compare something to something else, okay? And It's always uh, calling for our attention. Second, the author changes the pronouns, actually, that they use to describe the two groups of people. Um, In verse 4 to 6, the author actually uses the words them and they, like describing a group over here, them and they. But in verse 9, the author says we. And you. Like he's speaking to a totally different group of people. Third, the author refers to them, this group in 9 to 12, as beloved. This is the only time in the book of Hebrews that this word is ever used. And it is the same word used by Father, 
the Father, to describe how he feels about his son Jesus all through the Gospels. Beloved or loved one, this one that I love, this person that I love. This is a word that expresses deep loving intimacy. And fourth, the author uses the word salvation in verse 9, but never mentions salvation when he's speaking about that previous group. Okay? There's actually one more indicator that the people described in verses 4 and 5 are not Christians, and the people described in verses 9 to 12 are. This is really important. That's this phrase, better things that belong to salvation. The word belong here means to have or to hold, to possess something. So there are things that are possessed by and come along with salvation. These things are guaranteed if you're a Christian. So what are these things that belong to salvation? The author actually lists them all in verses 10 to 12. Now, it's not an exhaustive list of what belongs to salvation, but the author here is making a point. There are six things that are the better things that belong to salvation. One, their work. Two, their love for God's name. Three, they're serving the saints, which is just taking care of each other. Four, they have hope. Five, they have faith. And six, they have patience. Their work, their love for God's name, serving the saints, hope, faith, and patience. The author sees these things in the lives of those he's speaking about in these verses and is certain of their salvation because of this. So what are these things better than? What are these six things better than? They're better than the enlightenment, the tasting, and the partaking that the people in the group described in verses 4 and 5 have experienced. Like the author, we too can be sure of our salvation when we look at our lives and we see these things. You're safe. You're secure. And according to John 10, 29, no one can snatch you out of your father's hands. What an incredible verse. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of your father's hands. Period. This is Jesus. Be encouraged in the assurance of your salvation and know that it is all of grace and it is all of God. The second encouragement we see in this passage is that we are encouraged to persevere. Let's look together at what the author says in verses uh, 11 and 12. There he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is a bit of a double-edged sword how the author speaks this. I'll explain a little bit why. So earlier on, I mentioned that moving on to solid food, okay, growing in our faith, instead of being immature, is such a battle with our flesh. My flesh loves YouTube and Netflix and watching the Canucks just killing it. My flesh loves these things. My flesh loves all the things but the spiritual things. 
the things that nourish my soul and drive me deeper into relationship with God. So when I feel a jolt of conviction at the word sluggish in verse 12, I need to pay attention. And believe me, I need to pay attention. And maybe you do too. To be sluggish is to be spiritually lazy and apathetic. Another word for this is sloth. We don't really use this word anymore, but this is what it is. As one commentator writes, today's culture has come very near to making a religion of sloth. Carried to the ultimate, it separates us from God because it erases caring. Humanly speaking, apart from the mysteries of God's sovereign workings, more souls perish from sloth than from outright disbelief. So again, I will say that if we feel a jolt of conviction at the word sluggish in verse 12, we need to pay attention. In a great little book called Overcoming Apathy, and I might butcher his name, so if he hears this somehow, he's not going to, but um, the author, Uki Anazora, just say it with confidence and that's how it is, right? Um, but this book is, is really great. It's called Overcoming Apathy. He describes sloth as a lack of joy in and love for what is truly good. It is apathy toward God, the things of God, and the life of God in us. It is a spiritual sickness. It is the old self doing battle with the new self and resisting its advances. It's my old self doing battle with my new self that Jesus has created and resisting my new self's advances. So what do we do? We fight. We have to fight. In Philippians, a book by Paul, a small letter by Paul, in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, that word again, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is what it is to persevere, to fight for our faith against our flesh so that by gr the grace of God, we can kill this sin of spiritual sluggishness in our lives. But we must not forget that in doing this, in engaging in this fight, it is God who works in us, making any of this possible. It is God who works in us, making any of this possible. Man, how do we do this? Well, if you're here today and you feel entrenched in this struggle of spiritual laziness and you don't know where to begin fighting, your first course of action should be just pray. This is not actually complicated. Just go to God. There's no fancy prayer. There's no offering at an altar. There is a simple prayer, God help me, I need you, 
and I can't do this. What a beautiful prayer. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis has this incredible quote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Man, we are far too easily pleased. So this is the thing that is meant by sluggishness and sloth. It's not an all-encompassing laziness. It is a laziness purely directed at the things of God. So we can be people who spend hours invested in our own interests, like YouTube or hockey or whatever, and only minutes or even seconds going to Jesus. And please know I'm speaking to myself here. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Notice here that the people God is speaking about in this verse They're not doing nothing. They're simply going to the wrong places for their satisfaction and their fulfillment. They're fighting the fight of the flesh instead of fighting the fight of faith. And isn't this just so easy for us to do? This is why I love the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus, tired from his journey, sits down at a well. A woman comes to the well to draw water. She has a bucket, and Jesus doesn't. And Jesus asks her for a drink, which in itself, amazing. Then in verse 9, It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus goes on to say that if you drink regular water, we all know this, you'll get thirsty again. But if we drink the living water that Jesus offers, we will never thirst again. This is ultimate satisfaction. And yet we so desperately struggle in this fight against sluggishness. Man, we need prayer. We need the word. We need this. And we need each other. We cannot do this alone. 
And we need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Period. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We so often find ourselves uh, exhausted and fighting, but isn't it for the wrong things in the wrong ways? We need to go to Jesus. Not when we have picked ourselves up and cleaned ourselves off. Now. Because we need him to pick us up and we need him to clean us off. And if we find in ourselves even the smallest desire to fight the good fight, to fight this fight of faith, we know and, ha- and we can have the fullest assurance of hope that God is working in us. So this leads to the third encouragement we see in, in our Hebrews passage. This is the encouragement to pursue faith in Jesus. But how do we reach the end? How do we inherit promises and experience the full hope of salvation? Is it by working our tails off? Praying harder, converting more people, serving on a Sunday? It's none of those things. It never will be. We reach the end and we inherit the promises, as verse 12 says, through faith and patience. And guess what? You don't do those things. God does. This seems so counterintuitive, though. Wouldn't it just be easier to give us a list of requirements, right, than work, work, work? We can check things off a list, right? But here, in this passage, as is true for all of Scripture, we see that we are saved by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We do not and we cannot achieve salvation by any works we do. This is all of God, including that faith that grows in us in the first place. This should be a massive relief. And isn't it incredible? So God works to save us. He does the work to grow our faith. And then he calls and enables us to do good works. But only after he's already saved us. And according to our passage, God sees our good works that he has enabled us to do and is not unjust as to overlook them. And this all happens by God's grace grace through faith. So what is faith? Keep using this word, keep seeing this word. Hebrews talks about it a lot. And as we go on in the book of Hebrews, you're going to hear it even more. What is it? It's so much more than simply saying, I believe in God. It is believing God. And there is a difference. It is not just believing in God. 
It's believing God. It's trusting him. For us as Christians, it is looking to Jesus and saying, I trust in your finished work for my salvation, in the work you did on the cross to take my place, take on the punishment that I deserve. I believe that you, Jesus, are my salvation, and I no longer trust that I can save myself. That's faith. So what does living this Christian life actually look like? And speaking on this, John Piper says, what is unmistakable here is that the great battle of the Christian life is not the battle to produce merit or to earn it so that the justice of God will repay with salvation. We cannot work our way to salvation. He says the great battle of the Christian life is to keep on trusting God. To keep on being satisfied with God, the true living water. To keep on resting in God so that patiently salvation will come into your life. How on earth do we do this? How do we battle to keep on trusting, being satisfied, and resting in God? In other words, how do we strengthen our faith? Our faith will only grow. It will only grow in proportion to how well we know the object of our faith. It is not something inside of us. There's not this magic faith muscle that produces strong faith. It's only what or who we are looking to. So if I don't know Jesus, of course I'm not going to trust him. And if I find that my faith is weak, maybe it's because I don't really know him that well. When it all comes down to it, I really have to take a hard look at myself and ask myself, hey, self, what are you thinking about? What are you looking at? What are you spending time on? And what are you chasing, Ryan? I love theology. Some of you know this about me. Simply put, theology is just the study of God. I love reading what most people would call super boring books that are usually by authors who've died a long time ago. Okay? They're usually mostly dead. <laughs> it's amazing how much resistance there is when it comes to the pursuit of God in engaging in the discipline of theology. After all, what could be more boring than reading doctrine and theology by old dead people? And I seriously, God has wired me weird. And when I read books by dead people, I get goosebumps. So especially when I've been waiting forever for the next season of Mandalorian to start, why would I sit down and read this book by an old dead guy? Mandalorian's on. But here's why I love theology, and here's an analogy I use to explain its goal and its purpose, okay? When I was looking at engagement rings for my wife, Leanne, I actually looked at quite a few, um, and specifically different diamonds. And to my naked eye, these diamonds look sparkly. That's great. I think they're supposed to do that, and they're beautiful in a certain way, but my view of them was so limited. It was limited until someone put the diamond under a microscope and had me look at it again. 
And what I noticed when I looked at this diamond under the microscope was light bouncing in incredible ways, all the angles and shapes of this thing that I couldn't discern with my naked eye. The diamond became more and more incredible to me the longer I looked at it and the more deeply I looked at it. I had to have someone show me. This is true for how we see God as well. So my encouragement to everyone would be to pursue God, to pursue knowing God, first through Scripture, okay, and then by reading these boring books that help us understand what Scripture is saying about who God is. Spurgeon said, you can't do a sermon without Spurgeon quote, right? So he said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. By doing this, the glory of God, if we do this, the glory of God will shine even brighter as we see more and more of who he is. One of my favorite sentences in all of scripture is, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. What an incredible sentence. If we ask Jesus to grow our faith in him, he will never say no. If we ask Jesus to give us a love for his word and a love for spending time with him in prayer, he will never say no. Never. So as we begin to close... I'm going to jump ahead in Hebrews to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We pursue him. We kill the sin of spiritual apathy in our lives and rest in his finished work. He came. He died. He took our place. He took God's wrath on himself. He rose to give us new life, and he is the one who sits at the right hand of God, and he prays for us. Because of all of this, we can be confident in our salvation because it is all by him. So we have seen this morning three ways in which the writer of Hebrews encourages us. One, he encourages the assurance of salvation. He does this by pointing out in several ways that the group being described in verses 9 to 12 are very different from the group being described in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6. The people in verses 4 to 8 have experienced enlightenment. They have tasted, they have partaken in something, but they are not saved. They have not experienced salvation. In contrast to this group, we have the group described in verses 9 to 12. To whom belong the better things of salvation? These things being their work their love for God's name, their service to the saints, their hope, their faith, and their patience. 
Seeing these things in their lives is what has given the writer of Hebrews the certainty of their salvation. Secondly, the author then encourages us to persevere. He does this by calling us not to be sluggish. This spiritual laziness pulls us away from God if we give in and don't keep fighting. We need to go to living water instead of attempting to fulfill ourselves with an endless grind of unsatisfying junk. We need prayer. We need the word and we need each other. Finally, the author encourages faith in Jesus. It is faith in Jesus, trusting in the finished work that he has accomplished that saves us. And this faith is not something we can conjure up on our own. It's not. But it is a gift freely given, not based on our works or anything else we have done, but so that we can go on and do good works in his name. Ben, you can come on up, uh, which is a sentence I've never said before. As I close, um, I want to pray, um, but before I do, I want to read something from the end of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God equips us. He works in us that's that which is pleasing in his sight, and then he brings us safely to the end. So let us with thankfulness pursue him with everything that we have. Father, we just thank you so much for your word today, for the encouragement that this the writer of Hebrews shared with his readers, with the church he was writing to, the beloved. And for what it means for us today, Lord, that you call us beloved, that you have saved us, that you have done this work in our life to change us, to reconcile us, to bring us back to you, Lord. Lord, give us the patience, the faith to endure, to persevere, to not be sluggish, Help us kill that sin, Lord, if that's something we're struggling with. And Lord, I pray that you would put people in our lives who would help us with this. Lord, we desire nothing but to bring glory to your name, to know you, to worship you, and to enjoy you forever. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.